The ARC can help you get through Ozark Christian College. But when I was a student, this is what got me through Ozark Christian College. Now, when I was a student, uh, I kept a journal. It was this journal right here, this exact one. And, uh, and this journal uh, was, was where I would go to vent my emotions. Now, now if, if you read through this journal, you would have to buckle your seatbelt because it is a roller coaster ride of emotions. Uh, I, w- I would just pour out my heart onto these pages. I will, I will give you an example. This is uh, entry from February 24th, 1991. Now, my wife Katie and I, uh, we were dating at the time. In fact, we were engaged to be married in just a few short months. And before I read this entry to you, uh, here's an important thing you need to know. One of my pet peeves is when people talk during movies. Can I get an amen on that one? Yes. All right. If you go to a movie with me and you are talking, I will throw my cinnamon juju bears at you. Don't mess with me. All right. Don't talk during movies. This is my pet peeve. Here is the entry, February 24th, 1991. Tonight, I took Katie to the movie Green Card. And all day long, I had been trying to do all of the little things that that she expects. Smiling, talking, decision-making, etc. Let's stop right there for just a moment. (laughs) Can we meditate on that sentence? (laughs) Smiling, talking, decision-making, all those little things, you know. I am a moron. (laughs) So I took her to the movie. And then when we got into the movie theater, she was a real brathead. And I'm just supposed to take it because that's just the way she is. If I acted like I felt, she would act crushed and stepped on and victimized. But then, at a crucial part in the movie, when it is very sad, she reached over and tries to tickle me. She knows, underline, that I hate to be bothered during a movie. Especially, underline, underline, at such an inappropriate time, in such an inappropriate way. So I told her, don't. And then she was hurt. For the rest of the night. And I didn't want to deal with it. Now I feel like I have to say I'm sorry when I don't feel sorry. (laughs) Granted, I shouldn't have been so sharp, but she should have known better. Underline, underline. And oh man, when I read that journal entry, I can remember sitting on my bed, Williamson 312, 11 o'clock at night, having come home from the movie theater and scrawling this all out across the page in this great burst of anger. Oh, I remember that. And then closing my journal, going to bed, waking up the next morning, cooled off now, reading back through it and going, I'm an idiot. What did I get so worked up about? I had a beautiful girl sitting next to me in a movie. She wants to be paid. It wasn't even a good movie. I'm so stupid. And I realized that my emotions had gotten way, way out of line. And if you were to read through this journal, I mean, you would just find emotions all over the map. I mean, you know, there's joy. You know, she said, yes, yay. And here's... um, Let's see, here's one. This is from uh, November 29th, 1989. All right, the entry is two lines long. This is what I wrote. 
very tired, writing to soothe conscience, will write more later, good night. <laughs> what a legalist, jeez Louise. And you'll find as you read through these pages, fatigue and guilt and gratitude and sorrow and praise and doubt and fear. It is all in there. And this journal helped me to process this roller coaster of emotion, roller coaster of emotions that we call life. And in many ways, this became my free psychiatrist's couch. And it also became my prayer closet. Because if you were to read through these entries, what you would discover is that all of these feelings that I'm pouring out onto the page, they all, at some point, they turn into conversations with God. This is my prayer journal. And the best way to deal with emotions is to pray them. And this is how I got through Ozark Christian College. Now, this morning, we're starting this this six-week series, as Lydia said here in chapel, through the Psalms. And this uh, series is entitled, When I Feel. And and a bit of background on the Psalms. You all know this, you know, longest book of the Bible, 150 chapters, uh, many of them written by King David, although certainly not all of them. And you know that the Psalms are poetry. They They are intense, vivid, emotional language as you read through these. And you've probably heard somebody call the Psalms Israel's hymnal. And, and it certainly was. I mean, these were songs that they would sing together in worship. It was their chapel playlist. It was their hymnal. But the book of Psalms is also actually this. It is a prayer journal. Because when you read the Psalms, what you're doing is you're standing in David's prayer closet and you are reading over his shoulder. And and you're watching as he scrawls out on the page in great bursts of emotion all the things that are in his heart. And what you notice as you read through there are, are, man, what a roller coaster ride. I mean, you read uh, delight and joy and hatred and meanness and paranoia and giddiness. And and it's all there. It is a roller coaster ride. Think about this. Psalm 23. We all know that one. Calm, trust, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Psalm 23. Right before it, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Man. Man. Right next door to each other. You get emotional whiplash just reading from one to the next. And the Psalms, as you read through them, they are raw and they are messy and they are disordered, which, by the way, is like kind of how we experience life, you know. And when you read through the Psalms, it is very much like reading through a prayer journal, entry after entry, and we see into their hearts. And what the psalmists are trying to do as they turn these Psalms into prayers is they are trying, they are trying to bring what they feel in line with what they believe. They are trying to align the emotions of faith with the doctrines of faith. And the only way that you do that is in prayer. And so these psalmists, they have something to teach us. Because the psalms, this is not like any other book in your Bible. right? Uh, all the other 65 books in the Bible, that's God's word to us. But the psalms are our word to God. Oh, it's just as divinely inspired as, as the other 65 books. Don't misunderstand me. But when you read through the rest of Scripture, we're always asking the question, what is God saying to me? But when you read through the book of Psalms, you're asking, what am I saying to God? Because this is a guidebook for prayer. It teaches us how to pray. And as we walk through this series on the Psalms, when I feel, we're going to learn how we are to pray our emotions. How do we pray our fear? How do we pray our guilt and doubt and gratitude and grief? And this morning, my assigned topic is anger. How do I pray when I feel angry? And listen, sometimes 
The psalmists are angry. You got your Bibles? Why don't you grab your Bibles? Crack them open to Psalm 137. Psalm 137. We're going to look at this text uh, together. Uh, one of three texts we're going to look at. Psalm 137. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been reading through uh, what scholars call the imprecatory psalms. Some will call them the cursing psalms. Because there are at least, uh, in this book, at least 20 different psalms where the psalmist walks into his prayer closet and he is mad. He is seething at some injustice that has been done to him. He is angry and he calls down curses on his enemy. And I want to look at three of these psalms uh, with you this morning. We're going to start in Psalm 137. you got your Bibles open, you can follow along. It says this, by the way, written in Babylonian captivity, the psalmist writes... By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget It's skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Oh, remember, O Lord, what those Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. He who seizes your infants and dashes them on the rocks. Wow. That is one of the most shocking texts in all the Bible. I'll be honest, when I first read that, I was, I was horrified at the, at the raw hatred that's being expressed there. And maybe you are too, but maybe... Maybe the reason that we get so horrified is maybe because we haven't experienced raw evil the way that the Israelites had. When, when, when we face hostility, if we face hostility, a lot of us, to be honest, it's kind of low-level hostility. When my boys Carl and Conrad were little, Carl was like five, Conrad was three. And one day they were playing out in the backyard on the trampoline. They got into some kind of a fight argument. And so I went out to to intervene. And when I got out there, Conrad, three years old, looks at me and he says, Dad, Carl said a bad word to me. And I, and I turned to Carl and I said, Carl, is that true? Did you, did you call Conrad a bad word? And Carl said, yes. And he's five years old. And I'm, and I'm thinking, what bad word could it be? I mean, we homeschool, okay, and we don't watch TV. We only listen to K-Love. What, what is this bad word? You know, what could it be? And so I said, Carl, what bad word did you call Conrad? And he hung his head and he said, I called him your royal pickiness. <laughs> okay. On a scale of hostility, that's like a one, all right? Your royal pickiness, that's just not too bad. And most of us, when we experience hostility, it's, it's probably down there at about a one or a two. Now, sometimes we, we experience hostility, maybe up at a three or a four. You know, you're driving along, somebody gets mad at you, they, they flip you off, or, or somebody says something really mean or, or rude to you. Some of you, maybe you're a little higher up the scale, and, and you've experienced that, that five or a six. Maybe you've got a boss that is just honestly a real jerk, and they yell, and they scream at you, or you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend who has betrayed you. That hurts. Some of you, 
this morning have lived higher up on the scale. Seven, eight, nine. You were abandoned by a parent. Maybe, maybe you were abused by someone close to you. Israel in Psalm 137, they are living at a ten. I have never experienced what they experienced. Can you imagine? I have never seen my city burned. I have never seen my wife ravaged by enemy soldiers as I stood helpless. I have never seen my sons and daughters slaughtered in the streets. I have never seen my infant, my baby, ripped from my clutching arms as my wife screams and thrown over a cliff like garbage as the enemy soldiers laughed. That hostility is off the scale. And maybe as I walk into this psalm, maybe I should not be so quick to judge what I hear. Maybe I should just sit down and listen and learn. Because for some reason, God included this psalm in His holy book. In fact, when you read through the book of Psalms, there are a lot of these imprecatory psalms. Psalms like these, Psalm 3, where the psalmist says, Arise, O Lord, strike all my enemies on the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked. Psalm 55, let death take my enemies by surprise. Let them go down alive to the grave. Psalm 10, break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Call him to an account. Psalm 109, may his days be few. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. What, what do these psalms teach us? Why did God include them here? When I'm angry, how do I pray? Three psalms, three lessons. Lesson number one from Psalm 137 is this. When I pray my anger... I take off my mask. Can I say that again? When I pray my anger, I am taking off my mask. Now, maybe uh, my wife Katie and I, we have, we have six kids. Maybe some of you have heard me even talk about this before. Can I, can I tell you what Sunday mornings were like at my house when my kids were little? Six kids. Um, I would love to tell you that Sunday mornings were this time of focused joy and preparation. <laughs> I, I would love to tell you that Sunday mornings at my house, my, you know, my alarm went off at 5.30 and the, that I woke up with a smile upon my face. And that I, I then roll over and I, I kiss my wife, Katie, with minty fresh breath. And, and I, I say to her, good morning, dear. It is the Lord's Day. Let us arise and worship. <laughs> I'd love to tell you that I then hop out of bed and I do 100 push-ups and 100 sit-ups and then barely winded. I I walk into the closet and and I put on my my three-piece suit. And then I walk into the bathroom to comb my hair, but lo, it has not moved during the night. (laughs) And then I'd like to tell you that I walk into the kitchen where my wife Katie and I squeeze oranges to make homemade orange juices. We recite memory verses to one another. And then I'd like to tell you that my six kids, ages 18, 16, 13, 10, 8, and 5, all walk into the kitchen, having dressed themselves with smiles upon their faces, and they say to us in unison, Good morning, Mother. Good morning, Father. It is the Lord's Day. Let us rise and worship. (laughs) And I'd love to tell you that we all then hop into the van, and we drive the 15 minutes to church, singing together as a family, How Great Thou Art. (laughs) I'd love to tell you that, but it'd be a big, fat lie, all right? That is so not the way it goes down in my house, because... Sunday mornings at my house are crazy. They always have been. They are rush and hustle and it doesn't matter how early we get up. It seems like we're always running late and I hate running late and I'm just being honest here, cracking the door of my life. I can start to lose my cool on Sunday mornings. 
I mean, you know, I'm trying to rush my kids through, you know, they're sitting at the breakfast table. I'm slapping the cold cereal in the bowl and you know, milk spilling out on the table and I'm hollering at him. You know, I'm like, you know, you eat your cereal. You go get your clothes on for church. You stop hitting your sister. You stop crying. And, you know, yes, you have to wear clothes to church. You know, you go get your Bible. You know, you go get your offering money. Come on, kids. We got to go. We got to hurry up. Get out there in the van. We are late. We got to get on the road. We got to get to church and go learn about the love of God. <laughs> hurry up. <laughs> You think I'm joking? <laughs> and man, we hop in that van, and I mean, the smoke is pouring out my ears. I'm driving 85 miles an hour to church. I am so mad. And we come skidding into the church parking lot, fast and furious, baby. And, and I'm telling you, I slam open that van door, and I'm hurting my kids through the parking lot like a prison warden. Go, 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 go. <laughs> and I'm hollering at them all the way through the parking lot. But then you know what happens? You get to the front door, and there's a greeter there. You know, come on, kids, let's go, 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 go. Good morning, brother. <laughs> yes, how are you? Praise the Lord. <laughs> it is the Lord's day. Let us arise and worship. And as soon as I walk in that door, I put on that mask. Happy face, smiley face. I'm fine. Yes, how are you? And I pretend like I've got it all together and I don't. And sometimes we think that's what we have to do in our prayer closet too. Some of you probably think that, that when you come to God, you have to put on your Sunday best and you got to use fancy words and you have to use earnest tones when you pray to God. And listen to me, God, praying is not bringing to God who you think you should be. Praying is bringing to God who you actually are. And sometimes we are ang- angry. Listen, your roommate borrows your clothes without asking. Um, Your boyfriend, your girlfriend says something that just hurts. You're driving and somebody cuts you off in traffic. I, I don't care what it is. Listen, there are moments in life when you feel it, it's anger. And in that moment, many of us, we, we respond in, in one of two ways. Some of you explode in that moment. I mean, you, you snap, you yell, you start lobbing verbal grenades at whoever it was that did you wrong. And, and listen, that's not okay. Ephesians 4, in your anger, do not sin. But others of you respond with the exact opposite. You don't explode. No, 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 no. You, you bury it and you forget it. Maybe you grew up in a family where, where anger was never acknowledged. And maybe you are afraid of conflict. You're not a peacemaker, you're a peace faker. You pretend like anger doesn't exist. And so you bury it and you suppress it and you stuff it down there because you think that expressing anger in any way is somehow wrong. And that's not okay either. No, you don't vent anger, but you don't stuff anger either. What you do is you pray anger. That's what you do. You take off the mask and you bring who you actually are to God. I want you to listen to the words of one poet. One poet wrote this. He said, Will you accept my prayers, Lord? My real prayers rooted in the muck and mud of my life and not just the pretty cut flower gracefully arranged bouquet of words. Will you accept me, Lord, as I really am? Messed up mixture of glory and grime. And the answer is yes. Because in the book of Psalms, God includes these raw, honest prayers of anger. And He wants us to know He is big enough to handle your anger. Listen to me. You are not going to rock God's world. 
You are not going to rattle Him. He is not going to somehow abandon you because you have shown Him your true self and your real feelings. No, there's a Christian counselor named Dan Allender. And he calls these kind of psalms the psalms of lament. And listen listen to what Dan Allender says. He says, To whom do you vocalize your most intense, irrational anger? Would you do so with someone who could fire you? Or cast you out of a cherished position or relationship? No. You don't trust them. You don't believe they could endure the depth of your disappointment and confusion. No, the person who hears your anger, even your anger against them, paradoxically, is someone that you deeply and wildly trust. The language of lament is actually the shadow side of faith. So when you feel angry, take it in trust to God. Anger and bitterness and hatred grow in the dark. But when you bring them out into the light of God's presence, they die and forgiveness starts to grow. So when you feel angry, take off the mask and pray. Second lesson is this. From Psalm 139, when I pray anger, I dig under the surface. When I pray my anger, I dig under the surface. In Psalm 139, King David is writing this one, and he is angry at his enemies, and he prays curses down on them. Look at at what he says. He says, If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Oh, it's an imprecatory psalm. But, 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 when you get to the end of the prayer, the old king of Israel, he does something you don't see coming. Because at the end of the prayer, unexpectedly, he turns his attention from his enemies to himself. He stops looking out the window at his foes, and he looks instead at the mirror. And listen to what David writes at the end of Psalm 139. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. What David is asking God to do is to dig underneath the surface and show him what his true motivations are. As he is so angry, what is it that's really going on in his heart? And, um, and listen, that's, that's huge. Um, when I was in sixth grade, I, I was an awkward kid. I was I was super skinny back then. Uh, I wore glasses. I was this, this geeky kid, straight A kid, um, and, uh, and and I was I was just a, a real nerd back then. Um, Did you ever see that old TV show Family Matters? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I was like a white Steve Urkel. You following me here? And um, and I remember uh, when I was in sixth grade. You know, that's the first year in middle school. I can remember one day in middle school, I was walking down the hallway, and uh, you know, crowded hallway, and somebody from behind me pushed me and I fell there in the hallway and books of course all over the place and when I fell my glasses fell off and broke and I'm 12 years old at the time and I start tearing up and there's a kid there in the hallway named Jimmy Walrath and Jimmy Walrath was a wrestler he's a jock and Jimmy Walrath sees what happens and he sees me starting to tear up and he says hey everybody look Proctor's a crybaby. And so you know what I did in that moment? I got up and I walked right up to Jimmy Walrath and I punched him in the mouth. 
No, I didn't really do that. <laughs> but man, I wanted to. <laughs> and in my imagination, I did like a thousand times. Oh man, I, I nursed this anger fantasy against Jimmy Walrath. I never told him that. I'm a bury it and suppress it kind of guy. All right? And I never told him that. But here's, here's the question. What was underneath that anger? Do you remember when you were a kid and you learned um, that, uh, about color, that there are three primary colors? That there's blue and there's yellow and there's red. And that all the other colors are just a mixture of the primary colors. Orange, not primary. It's a mixture of red and yellow. Green, not primary. It's a mixture of yellow and blue. John Ortberg, psychologist and pastor, he says this. He says, anger is not a primary emotion. He says, it is always a mixture of other emotions. And so the, the question is, is this. What emotions are underneath that anger? Yeah, I was mad at Jimmy Walraff, but if you were to dig underneath the surface of that anger, you know what you would find? It was embarrassment. That's what I was really feeling. If I want to deal redemptively with the anger that I feel, then what I have to do is I have to dig underneath the surface. If I have a fever, yes, I can take some, some aspirin and treat the symptoms, but unless I look for the infection underneath that's causing the fever, I will never get the real medicine that I need. And so we pray, search me, O God, and know my heart. Help me to see what's really going on under here. So, faculty and staff, let me talk to you for just a minute. Let's imagine that it is late at night, uh, you're in your bed asleep, it's pitch black, when suddenly there is a loud thumping noise downstairs, like somebody walking around and bumping into things in your living room. And your wife wakes you up, and she elbows you, and she says, What's that? And you say, I don't hear anything. And she says, I do. And I saw on the news tonight that there was an axe-wielding murderer who escaped from a maximum security prison for the criminally insane. Go check it out. (laughs) And as you go downstairs in your underwear, because that'll scare him, (laughs) you are feeling anger. But if you pray, search me, O God, and know my heart, what you will discover underneath that anger is fear. And upperclassmen, let's say that you're driving somewhere, you're in a hurry to get somewhere, and it's a two-lane road, double yellow line, no passing, and you get stuck behind some slow car, some great big honking grandma mobile that goes zero to 60 in 4.5 weeks. (laughs) And in that moment, you are feeling anger, but you pray, search me, O God, and know my heart. And you find out that underneath the surface, that's actually impatience and frustration that you're feeling. And freshmen... Let's say that there's somebody here at Ozark that you're attracted to. I know, wild, just run, go with me on this, okay? And, um, and you know that this week, in fact tomorrow, October 18th, is the very day that Kevin Greer said all the way back in freshman orientation that you could actually ask somebody out. Am I right? Yes, I'm right. Some of you have this on your calendar. Notifications already popping up. Yeah, it is. And so you go to that person that you are attracted to and you ask them out and they say, ah... Oh, Yeah, I'm not going out with you. I just don't find you that attractive. Now at that moment, you might, you might feel anger, but if you pray, search me, O God, and know my heart, what you will find underneath is hurt. And when that RA gently calls you out for something and you feel anger, underneath that is actually guilt and shame. And that dad who abandoned you, and you feel anger. Underneath that is loneliness. 
And what we do when we pray, search me, O God, and know my heart, is, is we, we dig under the surface and we expose the real wound. And listen, that's when God can really begin to heal. That's when He can begin to fill your heart with peace. That's when He can begin to flood your life with joy. That's when He can begin to wrap you with love. That's when He can begin to make you whole. Search me, O God, and know my heart. When you feel anger, dig underneath the surface and pray. Last psalm, last lesson. When I pray my anger, I turn over the badge. When I pray my anger, I turn over the badge. You see, when when somebody does something wrong to us, our natural tendency is to want to get even. You know this is true. It is a deep instinct. We remember that hurt and we rehearse that pain and we nurse it and we feed those flames. And if you've ever read the Count of Monte Cristo, maybe you even say the words of Edmund Dante's, I will have my revenge. And we want to take justice into our own hands. This was several years ago when my kids were younger. I came home one Friday night. And uh, as soon as I walked in the door, my wife, uh, Katie, met me and she said, You need to go talk to your son. Now you know what that means, your son. And here's what had happened. Um, our, our oldest, Luke, who was 12 years old at the time, um, Luke, as the oldest of six siblings, sometimes thought of himself as like the third parent. Okay, And that particular day, one of his siblings had done something that he thought was wrong, and Luke somehow thought he had the right to spank, like to administer justice. And so he did it. And it was not okay. And so when I walked in the door, go talk to your son. And so I went and I sat down with Luke and I said, all right, Luke, let me, let me, let me try to explain this. All right. Um, Look at our, look at our family. We got six kids, right? Yeah. We're like a town, like an actual town. (laughs) And I am the sheriff. Your mom is the deputy, but I am the sheriff of this town. And when you see a fellow citizen doing something wrong, your job is to go tell the sheriff. If I am not around, then you go tell the deputy. But the one thing you do not do is take justice into your own hands. There are no citizen's arrests allowed. Go find the sheriff. Do you understand? Okay, Dad. Yes, I understand. Well, we ate supper, and then after supper, I actually had to come back to the college because we had an event on campus that night. And so I didn't get back home that night till like 10, 30, 11 o'clock. It was all, you know, house is all dark, and everybody was already in bed. And so I'm feeling my way down the dark hallway um, to the bedroom. And when I get, uh, as I'm pulling back the covers to get into bed, my hand brushes across something on the pillow. What in the world is this? And so I pick whatever it is up, and I go out in the hallway, and I flip on the light. And there on my pillow was a plastic sheriff's badge. And there was a little note that Luke had written, and it said, Dear Dad, I never knew a sheriff without a badge. Love, Luke. Now hear me, hear me. That is exactly what these imprecatory psalms do. They put the responsibility for justice back in the hands of the right person, God. 
Because listen, Psalm 143 says this. The psalmist writes, O Lord, preserve my life. In Your righteousness, bring me out of trouble. In Your unfailing love, silence my enemies. Destroy all my foes, for I am Your servant. And I want you to notice, the psalmist doesn't attack his enemies himself. He asks God to. He says, you take care of it. You bring justice. You are the sheriff. And in these prayers, the psalmist is turning over his badge. And hear me, hear me, Ozark. When you are angry and when you are tempted to get even, do not do it. Man's anger never makes things right. But hear me on this. I want to close with this last idea. God's anger always does. God's anger always makes things right. Now listen, God's wrath is not a very popular topic, to be honest, uh, these days. Even as Christians, sometimes we're, we're kind of hesitant to talk about it. Uh, you know, we like to talk instead about God's grace, and we like to sing songs like, Jesus loves me, and we like to read books with tender titles like, When God Whispers Your Name. And hear me, I, I, I'm a big fan of those too. I love God's grace. I love God's mercy and His, and, and His love. I'm grateful for those. Um, But I have never read a book called When God Yells Your Name. (laughs) I have seen uh, churches that have, you know, signs outside and and that that congregation is called The Church of God's Love. I have never driven by a building with a sign outside The Church of God's Wrath. Never seen that one. I have never heard anybody singing, Jesus shoves me this sign. (laughs) We don't like to talk about God's anger. And it's almost, it's almost like we don't want a God of wrath. But you hear me. The psalmists did. Because they understood something. They understood something that C.S. Lewis understood. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, anger is the fluid that love bleeds when you cut it. God, if you really love me, won't you do something about this? Because you know as well as I do that right now it feels like our world is falling down around our ears. It feels like evil men are prevailing. Right now we see things like a madman shooting people from a hotel window in Las Vegas. And we see an innocent black man getting, his life is lost at a routine traffic stop. And we see 10 year old girls being sold into slavery, sex slavery in Cambodia. And we see a bomb going off in Somalia and 300 people are killed. And we think to ourselves, God, are you watching this? Do you see what's going on here? Do you even care? What is it that the psalmist prays? In your unfailing love, destroy my enemies. If you love me, you've got to do something about this. Last story. I have a brother, Mark. And um, my brother, Mark, and I, now that we're all grown up, we're, you know, we're great friends. But when we, um, when we were growing up, he's three years younger than I, um, he just bugged the tar out of me. I mean, he frustrated me to no end because we were completely different. Mark is left-handed. I am right-handed. Mark is a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. I am a Dallas Cowboys fan because I am a Christian. And uh, I was a quiet kid. I never got in trouble at school. Mark always got in trouble at school. Did you ever have to do this? Did you ever have to write sentences in school? I will not talk in class. This is a true story. My brother Mark would get in trouble so much at school that he would write his sentences out ahead of time. (laughs) 
I am not lying. Teacher would be like, Mark, that's 100 senses. It will not write in class. He'd reach into his folder. Here you go. <laughs> like, what the heck? Who are you? I told you already, you know, I was that super skinny, you know, uh, glasses wearing, bookworm, uh, nerd guy, always reading. When I would get in trouble at home, no lie, sixth grade, my parents would ground me from reading. That is true. I was a geek. My brother Mark hated reading. He was an athlete. He loved sports. He was a jock. He was good at all kinds of sports. We were just totally different. And so most of the time, he just annoyed me. He frustrated me. But I remember one particular time. I was in seventh grade. Mark was in fourth grade. We were going to the same school, and we actually had recess together. I still had recess in seventh grade, believe it or not. And, um, and we had uh, recess. And so we're out on the, on the playground at the school. And, uh, and my brother Mark is over on the far side of the playground, you know, Mr. Athlete, a stud guy, uh, playing kickball. All right. And I am over on the other side of the playground, uh, seventh grade Matt with his glasses on, nerdy, with all my nerdy friends talking about like Lord of the Rings or something geeky like that. And, uh, and, and Mr. Competitive over there, all right, on the kickball uh, court. He, uh, he got in an argument with another kid. I got you out. No, you didn't. Yes, you did. And, and this other kid, his name was Travis, and he was a fifth grader. And my brother Mark was a fourth grader. And at some point in this argument, Travis decided as a fifth grader, he was not going to take this from some little punk fourth grader. And so Travis actually reached into his pocket and he pulled out a pocket knife and he went right up to my brother Mark and he threatened him with that knife. And at that moment, my brother Mark, he dropped the ball and, and he started running across the playground over here to find me. And as he was running towards me, man, I could just tell by looking at his face that, that he was scared. And when he got over there uh, to me, he, you know, he told me what had happened. And, uh, and, 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 and he actually he started to cry. Now listen, most of the time I, you know, I didn't even really like my brother Mark. But nobody messes with him except me. And at that moment, I got mad. And I mean, in my righteous anger, I marched over to Travis. I mean, I told you I was just this skinny little kid, but at that moment, I mean, I felt 10 foot tall and bulletproof. And I walked up to Travis and I grabbed a hold of his shirt and I tried to, to pick him up. And <laughs> then I just looked at him and I, <laughs> and I said, if you ever mess with my brother again, you better learn how to breathe out of your mouth because I'm going to break your nose. I said that. That's true. And I reached, I reached into his pocket and I pulled out the knife and I went and I found a teacher and I gave the teacher the knife and I told the teacher what had, what had happened. And listen, listen, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I, maybe I should have gone and found a teacher first. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't have walked over and talked to Travis. But anger is the fluid that love bleeds when you cut it. And at that moment, all I could think was, no bully messes with the people that I love. And you hear me, Ozark, right now? Jesus sees the hurt and the pain. And he will not do nothing. The sheriff is coming. He's tired of murder. And he's tired of abortion. And he's tired of war. And he's tired of rape. And he's tired of greed. He's tired of child-sized caskets and broken families and weeping widows. He's tired of kids who are being sold into slavery. He's tired of active shooters. 
He is tired of godless governments and false religions. He is tired of His church being harassed and beaten and jailed. He is tired of Satan, the bully of this world, messing with the people that He loves. And a day is coming when the sheriff will ride back through the clouds on a white war horse sword coming out of His mouth. And He will make things right. Justice will prevail. So you turn over the badge. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. And until that day, you take this book of Psalms. And maybe you get yourself one of these. And whatever it is that you feel, you pray. We'll sing.